tonight on Farage, as some Labour MPs call for a ban on the deportation of foreign criminals, we ask, should these flights really be banned? Is it the right thing to do? We'll look also at some figures suggesting that non-COVID deaths in the home are rising alarmingly and find out just how big is this impending health crisis. And joining me on Talking Pints, Roger Hallam, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. That should be interesting. So several Labour members of Parliament, some of them really quite prominent, people like Diane Abbott, are saying that it would be quite wrong for us to deport foreign criminals out of this country, especially those who left the country when they were really quite young. This row is about Jamaica, and it's about 50 people, 50 criminals, that the government wanted, following their convictions, to deport back to Jamaica. They hold Jamaican passports. And some of these people are murderers, others are rapists, others have committed serious sexual offences with minors, some uh, drugs crime, some gun crime, and some more minor crimes. But as a result of people like Diane Abbott saying this is all wrong, they shouldn't be deported, and some claiming through their lawyers that if they went back to Jamaica, they may not get good treatment. As a result of all of this, of the 50 that were going to be deported, only seven have gone. So 43 people, some of whom have committed very serious offences, are free to stay in this country. They'll see out their prison sentences and be allowed to stay here. And I, I have to say, I think the Labour Party have lost their marbles. The idea that just because these people happen to come from Jamaica that somehow that makes it racist to send them back to Jamaica is for the birds. We'd do exactly the same if they were white people from any other country. We deport foreign criminals. Not perhaps as many as we should, but we do deport foreign criminals. So why the Labour Party wants to keep criminals, including serious ones, inside the United Kingdom is a mystery to me. I think it's all bound up in this ridiculous race debate that is going on in this country. Somehow, you can't do anything or say anything about some racial groups in this country, otherwise they'll take offence. I've always taken the view that everybody before the law should be treated equally. But that is where we are. Senior Labour politicians calling for a complete banning of these flights where we deport foreign criminals, and some of them, as I've said already, very, very serious. I think it's nonsense. I really, really do. Uh, I think we almost want our bumps felt if this is how we're going to behave as a country. But as ever, I want to hear, please, what you think. So let me know, should we ban the flights, the deportations of foreign criminals? Give me your view, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And let's go for an opinion on this by somebody who might not agree with me, but that's fine. Uh, we want to have open, civilised debate here at GB News. I'm going to Steve Valdez-Simmons, Refugee and Migrant Rights Director at Amnesty International UK. Welcome back to the programme, Steve. Uh, you've heard what I've said. I, I mean, just, just tell me, why should we not get rid of people who've got foreign passports that have committed very serious crimes? Well, the question ought to be, um, what connection do the people that you're referring to as a starting point truly have to the places to which it's proposed to, in some cases, effectively exile them? 
and what connection do they truly have to this country? And you mentioned something very important, I think, in the introduction. The idea is a matter of principle that everybody should be treated equally before the law. Well, I'm afraid the way deportation policy operates in this country, people are not being treated equally because effectively deportation is being an additional punishment for some people who serve the sentences that anybody else serves for the offences that they have committed, but are additionally ripped from their family, sometimes taken from the only country they truly know. Indeed, deportation policy sometimes is taken against people not only who have been here since childhood, sometimes against people who have been born here and lived here their entire lives. That is not appropriate. Well, that, I, I, you know, in the case of these 50, I do know there were some who left Jamaica when they were quite small. I don't know of any that were born in this country, I have to say. But, but so your point is, despite the fact they have, in this case, Jamaican passports, but equally it could be Romania, it could be any other country, all right? And, you know, the same principle would apply. And, and presumably, Steve, you agree with me, this should not be about skin colour in any way at all. It, it certainly shouldn't be. Good. And one of the aspects of this which is tremendously important to understand is that we have British nationality laws that are supposed to ensure that children who grow up in this country are able to access the right to British citizenship. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, many people who grow up in this country, and I'm afraid to say it is disproportionately black and Asian minority children, are not able to access their citizenship rights. And when they find themselves sentenced, per perfectly appropriate to be sentenced for offences that they have committed, they suffer this additional penalty of exile to a place that is not no. fully theirs, that they're not truly connected to. They're as British, effectively, as you or I. This is the argument, Steve, about people under the age of 12. And I understand that argument, and it's a debate and something that will come, I've no doubt, at some point before Parliament. But let's take the majority of these 50. The majority of these 50 came to the United Kingdom when they were certainly over the age of 12, have, as I've said already, you know, in, in a number of cases amongst this 50, committed, you know, pretty heinous crimes. And it seems what you're saying is that under human rights legislation, the fact that they built a life for themselves in this country is the reason they should stay despite having, in this case, Jamaican passports. Is that really what you're saying, that it's their human right to stay here despite the crimes that they've committed? There might be. Um, the reality is that a proper human rights consideration of someone who truly has settled in this country, so has lived here for a long period of time, for example, as you say, possibly not since their childhood, but nonetheless, some of the people on this flight were well into their 60s and appear to have lived here for decades, who has family here, whose connections are all here. It certainly ought to be, and properly considered it would be, a human rights consideration to balance the proportionality of effectively, again, exiling someone to a place that they have long since left as against the seriousness of any particular offence. What about the human rights of those who will be affected if many of these people re-offend? And you and I both know that in some of these crime categories, re-offending is absolutely the norm. What about the human rights of those innocent British citizens? Shouldn't they be thought about in this debate? Um, 
The human rights of communities who are to receive people who need re rehabilitation and reintegration obviously should be taken into consideration. But human rights are not the preserve of British people or the UK. They are the rights of everybody in the world. And it certainly is a consideration as wow. to whether it is appropriate that in relation to this flight, should Jamaica be, for some of the people who were intended to be deported, the place that has to rehabilitate them, the Jamaican people, just like the British people or Romanian people, as you mentioned, or anywhere yep. else in the world, have a right to think that the way in which they are treated is appropriate and their human rights are not abused and they are not unduly fostered upon with people who have offended elsewhere, who have connections elsewhere. Well, yeah, but, that they, is yeah the but they have got those passports. Okay, let's try a different approach to this. What are the circumstances in which Amnesty International UK would advocate the deportation of criminals? Um, I think I should be a little bit careful there. It's not for Amnesty well, to advocate question. someone's deportation. Are you, it is. Okay. And if you allow are me you to against, finish, I'm very happy against, to answer. Are you against all deportations? No, no, is that, that what that's, you're that's saying? That's a better question. Go on no, then. Amnesty is not against every deportation. We would not right. call for the ban on any use of deportation powers. We are perfectly clear that the way in which deportation powers have increasingly been used in this country over many years have become tremendously excessive and many people face deportation, including some of the young people that I have mentioned, to places that they do not know and do not know them and where it's entirely inappropriate for that to happen. So do you think any of these 50 should be deported? I'm not in a position to assess that because I don't know any of the 50 cases, but I'm, I'm certainly not saying to you that it's inappropriate to deport anyone. Hmm. What I am saying is that mass deportations, which are often the way in which these flights are designed, rounding yep. up large numbers of people, are liable to end up with significant numbers, given deportation policy as it is at the moment, being pushed onto flights, which is not appropriate to do. Do you understand why an awful lot of people, you know, maybe not in the media, maybe not in politics, but an awful lot of ordinary folk look at this and simply can't believe there are any circumstances in which we wish to keep serious criminals in this country? Do you understand why some people think that? Well, I understand that. And I also recognise that, that so many politicians and people in the media say that and think that too. Some. All I am saying is that let's start with where actually you started. The idea that law should be equal to everybody. Yeah. And if we really and truly believe that, we should be thinking that particularly those who are long and clearly connected to this country, where they have served the sentence the criminal justice system has handed down for the offences that they have learnt and committed in this country, but it is not appropriate to then take excessive extra powers against them that would not be okay. taken against other people. We used to do that. We used to call it deep transportation <coughs> back in the 1890s. Yeah, I know, and that's how Australia was formed. I know, I know, and no one's suggesting that. But hey, it's a big case. It's very contentious. We have a very different point of view, Steve, but we have a civilised debate about it. And thank you for joining us here on GB News this evening. Well, there we are, two sides of an argument. You make your own minds up. You let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, for the last couple of weeks, regularly on this show, I've been talking about what I see as the looming 
health emergency. Uh, the fact that the NHS has a 5.3 million operation backlog, and uh, we're now told that could become 14 or 15 million by one or two think tanks over the next few years. The fact that GPs, uh, in most cases, are not actually doing face-to-face consultations. And so you've got things like dementia just not being diagnosed at all. And what we saw today was some Office of National Statistic figures. Uh, And they come out every week and they give you deaths, deaths that occurred in the previous week. They are a very accurate set of figures. And what we've seen in those figures is, I think, an alarming rise of those that are dying at home but are not included in the COVID figures. And I suspect this is misdiagnoses. I suspect that it is mistreatments. Well, to help me with this is Dr. Charles Levinson, Chief Executive of Dr. Call, a private GP service offering home visits. I, uh, Charles, welcome. All I can say Please. is I've been getting uh, viewers in touch with me from all over the country, and there are leaflets going through doors saying that if you want to pay for a private GP consultation, there's somewhere close to you uh, that is offering a 24-hour service. Uh, is it right, is, just to begin this conversation, is it right that most NHS GPs are still not meeting people face-to-face? No, it's an incredible shame that they're not. And it is, it's not necessary, um, but it has, um, it, it has become established. It's become the new norm. And it, is, it, it isn't helpful. It isn't even, uh, doesn't even to save the doctor time because he still has to assess the patient, make his notes, and then in something like a quarter of cases, he has to then see the patient as well because he wasn't able to, he or she wasn't able to sort it out over, over the telephone or uh, over a video call. So, so it isn't helpful at all. And it, and it, it ought to change. Yeah, I, mean, I have to say people are, very, people are very angry about this and very upset about this. And they want the reassurance of actually being seen by another human being. So I would guess, Charles, that business for you guys uh, must be pretty good and pretty busy at this moment in time. You don't have to answer that. So the ONS figures that have come out within the last 24 hours, and that's for the week up until July the 30th, are showing us excess deaths at home against an average of the last five years for what is, let's remember the summer, you know, this is, this is not January and February when death rates are at their highest, and it's suggesting an increase during that week of 33% over the previous five years. And I would suggest, Charles, that figure is alarming. And I'd like to ask you if you agree with that, what do you think is causing this? Well, I think it's a complicated picture, but it is it is significant. It is that there have been enough um, excess deaths in the home that it isn't just it isn't just a, a statistical uh, uh, um, aberration. It is there have been fifty one thousand up until um, the beginning of July, and as you say, another over seven hundred last week. And it's um, it, there are um, I think quite a lot of um, factors at play but uh, the if we if uh, and i'm talking here about non-covid deaths as yeah, well so yeah, there's yeah. a death in the home yeah. uh, but from other things and so they're they're not caused by the virus but i think they have to be caused clearly by the pandemic one way or another because that's what's new 
And, um, and so since it's not the virus, but it is the pandemic, one has to think now, is it the, um, is people's response to the pandemic? And people are not getting the medical attention that they need. And it's partly because the medical attention is, is hard to get um, at the moment, but it's also because people have been scared by um, the, the wow. social scientists who, who've produced a scare campaigns to try and get people to socially distance. And, um, and they are frightened to, to go to hospital or go to their doctor. Well, and one of the reasons for that is we do know that a significant number of people actually do contract COVID in hospitals. I mean, that, that, that's part, I guess, of what people are scared of. But, I mean, let's just look at this backlog of operations. You know, we're 5.3 million operations behind. The Nuffield Trust um, and one other think tank suggested over the weekend that could rise to a waiting list of 14 million. Whether that's right or not, I don't know. But it does seem to me that it's almost impossible that the NHS can ever clear this backlog. Am I being too pessimistic? It's going to be incredibly difficult. And it's, it's not just a matter of, of money, of investment in the NHS, because it takes years and years to train medical staff. So um, it is, it's going to be incredibly difficult. And, it is, and, and the private sector is not going to be able to just mop it up because you know, where the private sector is, is actually tiny compared to the NHS and, or, and, and all uh, organisations in the private sector are generally are, are functioning at pretty well capa full capacity anyway. But I think the private sector could expand, uh, but I agree with you, we're facing one hell of a problem. Finally, can I ask you, please, Charles, just for some quick advice, there are people, people watching this and they've got an elderly relative who's not feeling very well, perhaps got chest pains, whatever it is, what should they do? Should they turn up at the local accident and emergency? What should they do? I think they've got to be pushy. So when, so when it all started, we set up at Doctor Call, we set up a uh, um, video uh, functionality very quickly. And, yeah. and, and we thought this was what was going to be needed. And people don't use it. They give them the choice. We, we're private. We give them a choice and they don't use it. They, they, they want to see a doctor. And it is, what, it is what I think people want, but they don't think it's available. And it's made very difficult for them. And they just need to push and they need to insist. And the doctors will see you if you, if okay. you demand it. And I think that's the, that's the message. No, well, that's a good message. Be pushy if you or somebody around you close to you has got a problem. Dr. Charles Levinson, thank you very much for joining us. And I promise you, viewers, we're going to come back to that health debate again and again and again. And these figures, I think, are a sign of what is, I'm afraid, going to be a very, very major problem. In a moment, European Union flags have been going up in British high streets. I'm not joking. That in Brexit Britain. So we've had that debate. I had Amnesty International UK on. Uh, and, you know, they're arguing that you should not deport people to countries that they might have left a long time ago when they built a life in this country. Uh, to me, if you're a foreign national uh, committing a crime, particularly a heinous crime, uh, then we frankly 
don't want you here. Uh, so I asked you for your reaction to this, and goodness me, there's quite a lot actually. Ian on email says, this shows how out of touch Labour are with the majority in this country. They are unelectable. I have to say the fact that senior Labour figures are calling for this, I, I don't think does them electorally an awful lot of good. That is an understatement. Roy on email says, these criminals who are not even British, so why should the taxpayer pay for keeping them here? Well, in most cases, we've already paid for them to go through prison. Ian says, last year, following a similar thing happening, Pretty Patel said <laughs> she would change the law so that human rights lawyers could not make challenges at the last minute again. So what has happened? Yes, she did. I mean, she's wonderful, isn't she, Pretty Patel? Yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's a channel migrant crisis or this. She stands up in the House of Commons and elsewhere and makes promise after promise and sounds incredibly tough. And the paid up Tory membership say, isn't she absolutely marvellous? And then, well, nothing happens at all. Time after time, after time. And Boris himself talked about lefty lawyers intervening. But you see, Boris, the point is this. We may have Brexit, but all the while we're still signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights, lawyers will be able to do this again and again and again. And I think that discussion with Amnesty, we talked about human rights because all this stuff is still written into British law. Now, Prince Andrew, uh, the Duke of York... Prince Andrew is having, uh, facing, uh, I think, the biggest crisis yet. You know, we all know about his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, we've seen the photographs that were taken of him walking in New York with Epstein even after Epstein had been convicted of serious sex crimes against minors. But now, one of his accusers, Virginia Jeffrey has actually gone to law and she's taking a civil case, a civil case saying that she was sexually assaulted by the Duke of York. And that is, it couldn't really be a much more serious charge against a senior member of the royal family. Now, the fact that it's a civil case, uh, it seems to me he won't have to go to America or he can't be forced to go to America. I don't, but I don't know. You know exactly how American law works. I'm sure very few watching this program do, which is why I'm joined now by U.S. criminal defense attorney Joseph Tully, who specializes in serious crimes. Joseph, thank you very much for joining us here on GB News. Thank you for having me. So we see this situation. It is a civil case that Virginia Jeffrey has, has, has put against the prince. Uh, what does that mean? Please explain to us in terms of the court that it will be heard in and what powers that court may have over the Duke of York in terms of him giving evidence or having to go to the USA. So because this is a civil case, the, there is not a possibility of him being extradited. That would happen in a criminal case. So the case has been filed in our court system. We don't distinguish uh, between civil cases and criminal cases. It goes in the same court. However, the cases have different powers. So if there is a judgment against Prince Andrew, um, then the U.S. court can seek to enforce it. But I'm not sure to what degree. Right. So he could, he, he could choose not to go, choose to present no evidence but be found guilty in absentia, but then 
What would happen? Would it be a prospective prison sentence? Would it be that and a fine? I mean, he couldn't, he, he couldn't, he literally couldn't be deported from the United Kingdom, could he, for a civil case? Correct. Not for a civil case. So think of civil, that has to do with money. So think of dollar signs. Civil is dollar signs. Yeah. Criminal is bars. And so um, he wouldn't be found guilty. He could at most be found, be found liable um, and he could never be deported. It would be um, pay a money fine, money damages, that sort of thing, if they could get um, a bank or his resources to enforce it. And I'm not sure that can happen. Another possibility, and frankly, I believe the most likely possibility is that if his lawyers do file a response, they'll simply say, He's facing criminal charges or the possibility of criminal charges and therefore is exercising his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Yes. And from what you can see of the case, I mean, is this just one person's word against another? Do we know what witnesses may be called? Is there any evidence? Well, there's uh, as a as an attorney, the main things that he has going against him are the photograph it's him it's yes. the alleged victim complaining witness and it's uh Ghislaine maxwell in the background in in what her brother said is is her apartment in london and then there's the tide of public opinion which has a very low tolerance now for uh, crimes against women crimes against um underage women and sex trafficking so those are really his main opponents right now yeah and she was 17 uh, when that photograph was taken, as you say. Um, but that of itself, I mean, you know, the tide of public opinion of itself is not evidence, but I can see, uh, you know, why he's in great, great difficulties over this. How often, how often, I mean, just, I mean, it's a difficult question for me to ask you, but how often do civil cases like this, you know, without, and what I meant by evidence, without DNA evidence or anything like that, what would you assess the likelihood of this case of Virginia Jeffrey being successful in getting some compensation awarded by the court? Well, first of all, it, the case would have to go to a court. Civil cases very rarely go to court and very rarely go through trial. If that were to happen, however, it's literally a he said, she said case. Yes. Um, the jury would be instructed that if they believe the testimony of one witness, that is enough to establish the case. So it, it literally would come down to who the jury believes more, uh, him or her. And here we have past uh, statements by the prince, which weren't very good on TV. They were inconsistent and illogical, and they didn't bode well for him in terms of being a witness. Mm. Joseph Talley, thank you very much indeed for joining us and explaining how a civil case works in the USA. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And it's important to say before we move on to the next item that Prince Andrew denies all of these charges. My what the Farage moment. Regular viewers will know that a couple of weeks ago I said that extraordinarily, despite us being in Brexit Britain, despite the government telling us that EU flags would not be flown from buildings, public buildings in England, that we were about to see EU flags back on British high streets. I wondered when I first saw this story whether perhaps it was a hoax of some kind. But no, it's not. Because incredibly, as part of our leaving the European Union, we've agreed to give them £40 billion. 
pounds, but out of the goodness of their hearts in the European Commission. They are giving us back £56 million, and this is to help high streets get going again post-Covid. So sums of money have been awarded to towns across the country, and the price of accepting back some of our money, which has been recycled and given back to us, is that we have to fly the EU flag. So let's see that picture again. These, th that, is, that is a town in Hertfordshire, and that sign with the EU flag went up. And there are lots of signs like that up and down the high street to say how grateful we are to a political union that we're no longer a member of, that they have actually managed to find it in their hearts to recycle some of our money and give it back to us. And I have to say, this is complete and utter nonsense. Uh, why we shouldn't be giving them all this money in the first place. We shouldn't still be in receipt of tiny bits of money back. What we voted for and what we wanted was a clean break Brexit. And yet, one way or another, we're actually going to go on paying diminishing sums, relatively small sums in the end, but we're going to go on paying the European Union for the next 30 or 40 years. doesn't seem to me that that part of the deal was really very well thought through. You do wonder, don't you, whether some of those negotiating these deals had actually thought to themselves, well, somehow, you never know, we might rejoin one day. Well, we're not going to. And sticking with the EU theme, I find this difficult to get a handle on. Because it seems to me that if immigration into a country is going to work, and if we're going to have assimilation in society, if we're going to have harmonious communities, we really must be able to speak the same language. And if we're not speaking the same language, I think it's very, very difficult to see how we're going to have a harmonious society. And I have to say, I, I, I mean, others may disagree with me, but I do find going around parts of London, uh, you know, seeing signs in other languages, I find it really, really quite worrying. Now, in this case, a Latvian worker, and she's been working in Hull, she's been working at a fruit and veg uh, snack supplier, and despite the fact she's been there for some years, she doesn't speak English. And it finished up with a case where she was reprimanded for speaking Latvian with other workers on the production line. And there is actually a logical argument that says, if you're all working together as a team in a factory, you know, dangerous things can happen. You need to be able to communicate in the same language. However, she was called in uh, and given a talking to by the bosses. Uh, she normally relied on her daughter to be an interpreter. Uh, her daughter wasn't around. She couldn't speak English. And so the firm said, look, we're really sorry, but if you can't communicate with us and you can't communicate with the rest of the company, I'm afraid... Uh, that is the end of your employment with us. She took this to a tribunal and she's been awarded £10,000. Somebody working for a British company who doesn't speak English has been awarded £10,000 because she was asked to speak English. Now, it might be unreasonable if it's a casual labour person and it's their first week uh, that they've been legally in this country, but it does seem to me this is the most ridiculous award. Uh, surely, surely all of us who believe in a country that is united, where we can get along and work with each other, surely we all believe that we must, must be able to speak the same language. Let me know if you disagree. I'll be very happy to read it out at the end. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, in a moment.
In 2019, London was hit by a wave of protests, bridges being closed, roads being closed. And I've got to tell you, it made me pretty blooming angry. And I think it made a lot of other people pretty angry. But it was all done in the name of Extinction Rebellion. And from the 23rd of August, so it's just around the corner, they're about to start this again in London with eight different sites. Um, and they're talking in some way about these perhaps being almost permanent uh, protests. So what the attitude of the police will be, I don't know. Well, joining me to discuss Extinction Rebellion, uh, views on climate change, but in particular, some of the tactics that are being used and have been used is the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam. Roger, I'm going to say cheers. Welcome to cheers. Talking Pints. Now, this is the funny thing. You were a co-founder mm -hmm. of Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. you, you, know, you clearly believe the world's about to end. Um, uh, and you believe that sincerely. I, 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 I question that. But yeah, I know you believe that sincerely. But this is the bit that well, may end. Just well, to be a bit more precise. Well, well, you think six billion could die because yes, of climate could. change? Yes, could. Could. It certainly could. So, so there'll, there'll be what one billion left. That's, so that's, it's a pretty extreme. That's, um, the view of a number of scientists. Well, you can end. get different. I mean, you can you know get any scientist you want to say something. But let's come back to that. Mm -hmm. But here's my point, Roger. You know, we are as a country used to changing things generally through the ballot box. Mm -hmm. You know, we use the ballot box and we change the nature. Of, of, of parliaments and of governments. You must be thrilled with this Tory government. I mean, this is the greenest government we've ever had. I mean, Johnson is making all sorts of commitments. You must be very, very pleased with what Boris is doing. No, no, we're horrified. Horrified? Horrified. Why? Why? I mean, he's getting rid of coal. Yeah. We're going to have electric cars. What's not to like from your point of view? Well, I, I think we have to start off. I mean, I do a number of interviews, as you know. And I think we have to start off just establishing the absolute dire-ness of the threat of the climate catastrophe. Because if it's just a little bit of a problem, then number one, there's no excuse to going on the streets. And number two, we can just amble away mm -hmm. getting to net zero by 2050. But the fact of the matter is we're facing what the scientists call is an existential threat. Now, in ordinary language, that means what? that billions of people starve to death and we'll have a collapse of global well, we might get. I mean, I mean look we could be hit by a meteorite uh, we could have a series of massive volcanic explosions there could be a nuclear war um, there's all sorts of, of, of disaster scenarios that could befall us um, and you know certainly when I was a kid people lived in fear of nuclear war that that could wipe out most of mankind mm. as we know it mm. but my point is this you know you yourself have been arrested you know, for spray painting King's College, London's Great Hall. You know, you are, Roger Hallam, you, you know, you have taken yourself, because of your views, and I, and I understand you hold them, I don't agree with them, but I understand you hold them sincerely, and, and, and that's important for me to say that. Mm -hmm. But you are prepared to use vandalism and violence to achieve your goal. Well, just to be clear, like, the precise actions that I'm involved in is painting buildings, painting King's but College. But that is vandalism. Well, as it happens, I went to a Crown Court and the jury found me unanimously not guilty because they understood that in this country, as I'm sure you know, there's a right of necessity. And the right of necessity says it is legitimate to cause criminal damage if you have a lawful excuse. So the lawful excuse obviously is based upon 
the degree to which the climate emergency is an emergency. You see, part of this is because, and I'll tell you why perhaps Can I just pick you up on one other thing? Go on. Which is, That's fine. I have, have a go. I, do, I just want to make I, a few mean. things a little bit clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be marvelous. <laughs> okay, it's not about committing violence, right? You know, you know, and I'm sure many of your viewers know that Extinction Rebellion, you might not like it, but it is explicitly committed to non-violence. Well, painting things is getting pretty damn close to it. You, um, you, know, you, you stop people going about their livelihoods. Mm. And, and here's the funny thing. There are some people who have a sort of favourable view of Extinction Rebellion, because they, well, mm -hmm. you know, OK, we don't necessarily like them closing the bridges, uh, but, you know, they're all for... You know, they're all for making the world a better place. And I think sort of even people like Stanley Johnson have turned up at, at, at some Extinction Rebellion events. And I know you're not an, you're not an official anymore, mm -hmm. but you're part of that movement. But I wonder, you know, how many people who sort of think, oh, well, Extinction Rebellion, I mean, they're all actually, they're actually pretty harmless. I wonder how many of them sort of know that they're calling for Extinction Rebellion, want 90% of the assets of the wealthy to be stolen. Yeah, I, I don't know where that came from. Uh, well, well, it comes from extinction. Andrew Neil, it comes from it comes from extinction rebellion. I mean, you, look, come on, let's face it. This is a Marxist organisation, isn't it? This this is hardline communism. This is all about. This is all about actually getting at the rich, getting at business, putting us back to living caves. Um, <laughs> well, 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 hang on. You're going to ban us flying? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. You, you're going to stop me having a car? Yeah. yeah. You're going to stop me eating meat. Can I still drink under the new Hallam world order? <laughs> OK, well, just for the record. No, I'm asking you. I'm I, 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 yeah, yeah. Let, let me just start by saying I've actually been a businessman personally for 30 years. So it's a little bit rich to accuse me of communism, right? I'm a farmer. But I think the agenda, the agenda. Know, just hang, hang on a minute. So like most people in Extinction you know. Rebellion and dare I say, I know lots of them are not communists. They're not even left wing. What Extinction Rebellion is about, if you want to be interested in the reality of the situation, is thousands and millions of people now who are terrified of a very real threat to the continuation of this country, to the continuation of our way of life, to the legacy that we're going to provide for our children and the very existence of humanity. All now, because of carbon dioxide. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, can, can so we, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, mean, we, 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 this is one of the things we need to establish is what's happening in the real world. Because if we don't do that, then you just think I'm mad and that's up to you. But it so happens well, well, you're to be the, different. I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you that. But, I mean. but it so happens, as you know, there's been a report come out uh, by the world's top scientists. I know. Passing 1.5 Yeah, I saw that. Now, I three saw year, that. Three I year, saw only that. three years ago, yeah. they said, no, 1.5 degrees is, okay. you know, 2040. Now they've accepted it's going to happen in the next uh, 10 years, maybe in the next five to seven years. So what I'm putting to you here is there's a pattern and as a savvy politician, as you are, right, you retired, should retired, be aware, retired, retired yeah. you should be aware that people manipulate the truth in order mm. to have an agenda. Oh, I know that. Because yes. it, because so let me just give it, you a because, little... Hang on a sec. Let, because in 1989, mm. right, your mates at the UN put out a report that said within 10 years, man-made climate change would move beyond a position where we could do anything about it. 
The Maldives were going to be underwater. Much of Bangladesh was going to be underwater. We were told in 1989 we had 10 years to save the planet, right? Mm -hmm. We were then told in sort of 2005 or so that the North Pole would be gone in seven years. It's still blooming there. And now we get another report uh, from these people telling us the end of the world is not. Can you understand... Well, interestingly what, can enough... Can you understand why a lot of us think you're crying wolf? Well, interestingly you know? enough, my position, uh, if you want to know what my position is, is that they're underestimating the severity of the crisis. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because what, you're, do you, what do you base that on? OK, so there was an article in the conversation, like you can look it up on the website, it had three of the world's leading scientists, and they said that in 2015 at the Paris conference, you know, yeah. none of the scientists believed that staying under 1.5 was going to be feasible. So for the last six years, this whole global conversation about staying under 1.5 has been rubbish because in, in so much as we're going to believe, you know, several thousand of the world's leading scientists, it's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because we've already got these increases locked in. And you can look at peer-reviewed papers. I mean, Andrew, when I was last on, yeah, was saying, but, you know, you know we, uh, where's the peer-reviewed papers? I've got a peer-reviewed paper for but you. But you're basing everything. This, this, is, this is the crazy part of this. Mm. You're basing everything on man's production of carbon dioxide, right? I don't hear you say anything positive about planting trees. I don't hear... I, mean, I was watching today, Surfers Against Sewage. You know, an and by the way, I'm an environmentalist. You know, I have been all my life. I, I genuinely am. Surfers against sewage today, they're going down onto Devon and Cornwall beaches and clearing the place up. It, they're doing something positive. I don't hear anything from you guys about tree planting programs, about things we could do, peat bogs or whatever it may be, to start absorbing carbon dioxide, if that's what we're worried about. All I hear about is stopping us living normal Western lives. It's, it's, it's kind of a sort of Cromwellian Puritanism that you want. I mean, you're smiling, which I'm very pleased. I didn't, I wasn't sure whether you chaps ever smiled, really. But, but, but can you see what I'm saying? There's nothing positive I, I totally here. see what you're saying. And you've got very good reasons to think that the environmental movement historically has interfered with what you might call the traditional way of life in this country. You know, business people want to get on and make money. People don't want red tape. I know what your position is, right? Well, I want a balance, but, a well, sensible balance. A sensible balance, right? And you've got good reason for opposing that, you know, let's say for the sake of argument. The, the argument I'm coming on your show to say is yeah. it's actually changed. Now, we always, we know when a situation changes. Now, you can debate whether it has changed, but sometimes something changes and you have to radically change course. In other words, what the situation is at the moment, right, from this point on, is we're in an emergency. Now, when you're in an emergency, you have to change the whole way you approach something. In other words, like traditionally, environmentalism was saying, no, we don't want the free market and what have you. The situation now is if you don't, if you don't intervene to stop the emission of carbon, right, you're going to destroy the economy, right? This is the critical flip point which people like you, I hope, will engage with. That's why I'm coming on to talk to you. It's well, not like I'm opposed to your point of view necessarily. That's pretty irrelevant. What I'm trying to say yep. is is look at the science. In other words, look at the real world. So, so the emergency, okay. You believe if the, if the real world is saying we're I, I mean, you, I mean, there's all sorts. Then of, there's all sorts. Prudence, of, there's all sorts of opinions on this, and you know, let's face it, 
heavy volcanic activity will put far more CO2 into the atmosphere than man ever can, you know, and we don't know whether well, that's going to happen next Wednesday or whether it's going to happen 100 years' time. We just don't know. Mm. But we know that's true. But I just, Roger Hallam, I just... If, if you're serious in saying that your activists are going to try and effectively stop London from operating, that we have to move to net zero by 2025. You literally are telling us to virtually live in caves. You know, we wouldn't have a car, we wouldn't go on holiday, we wouldn't go to work. I mean, this is just impossible. Even if, even if a fraction of your fear was true, this is unachievable. Well, we're in a very difficult situation, aren't we? I mean, I think you're being a bit disingenuous by saying, you know, it's similar to volcanoes and what you are. No, I'm saying to you, heavy volcanic activity puts out more CO2 into the atmosphere than man does. Do you agree with that? But but I don't know, to be honest, on that Well, you know, you look at what... (laughs) What I I do know is, and I talked to some of the world's leading scientists, what I do know is we're in this absolute crisis where we're going to lose the Arctic, there's going to be massive melting of... The ice caps. We've heard you know, it all before. We've all, again, you've heard it before. And again and yes, again. you have. So that doesn't so, mean. No, just listen, right? <laughs> that does not mean that it doesn't happen, right? Well, yeah, in the, I guess in the end, if you keep making predictions, one of them will come. Well, right. exactly true. Yeah. So, so here we Maybe. are in 2021, right? What you have to look at is yes, you know, false alarms. Right. I tell you what, what's I, happening in 2021. I'll tell you what, mate. What we'll do, we'll just close, we'll close everything down, right? We'll, we'll, we'll dress in hemp and we'll live in caves. But China will go on. Uh, it already emits about 30% of the world's CO2. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is coming out of the pandemic far more strongly than anybody else. It's going to go on mining coal. It's going to build 100 new coal-fired power stations this year. Aren't we whistling in the wind? If you're right about this... Aren't we whistling in the wind unless China joins you? It's, it's a massive problem. And I'm interested to know what you think we should do. Well, I tell you what, there's nothing we I can mean, do. You've, you've, they I are think, intense. I think 10 years ago you were saying that climate change didn't exist, if I remember rightly. No, right? I, no I've always said I don't right. know. Right, that's fine. I but don't now, know. Now, my understanding of your position now is it is real, right? Most, no, most I, conservative I, I, commentators I still, I still have accepted... I still don't know, but I'm an environmentalist, mm-hmm. and so I'm prepared to take some precautions. Right, exactly. And those, and those, precautions, exactly, yeah. those precautions would be mass global tree planting, mm-hmm. mass... Um, encouragement of wetlands which as you know absorb i want to do some positive things and yes we must make engines more efficient we must do all of those right. things all right yeah. so so you know i am i am equivocal well we're, what, we're on the same side in that sense because well, what, we're saying, well i want to hear what something extinction, positive from you what, what extinction give, rebellion, give what, me some positives or okay, what, all you want to do is put, make me live in a cave no what we, what we want to do right what we want to do through extinction rebellion mm. my understanding is provide a platform for the ordinary people in this country to make a judgment. So they're not following you and they're not following me, right? They can be a citizen's <coughs> assembly, which they use all around the world. It's a non-political idea, right? Which is ordinary people yeah, come who, together. Yeah, I worry like, about Like that. your viewers. Yeah. Your viewers. Like, like the Communist People's Congress. <laughs> I don't like the look of it. Roger, I tell you what, we're out of time. One last quick question. Mm. What makes you happy? What do you enjoy doing? Are you, are you so depressed about things that you can't possibly enjoy life? Well, I enjoy coming on this, talking about <laughs> Well, there you yeah. are. He likes a bloody good argument. <laughs> there we are. Roger Hallam. That was Roger Hallam. And you know what? He's put his case. Um, also, one thing for him. He does actually believe it.
Well, just a couple more minutes left, and we get to that part of the show, Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in, and I read them out, and I do my best to answer them sight unseen. So here we go for a couple of minutes. Okay, Nick on email asks, do you think single-issue parties like Reform have any value? Depends how you define single-issue. Uh, reform is not re- reform is about fundamental change of the entire de- all the democratic structures in this country is that one issue or is it multiple issues uh, and you could argue if you wanted to that ukip was a single issue party dealing with membership of the european union oddly when we started the greens were really good on this and then they got bought off it seemed to me so single issue parties can succeed if it's a big enough issue interestingly we have the greens uh, in this Uh, country who, you know, Roger Hallam's mob uh, support. Um, But they're not making a huge amount of progress at the moment unless you think Boris has taken their clothes. Sadie on email asks, what was your biggest achievement in the European Parliament? And is there anything about being an MEP you wish you could have done more work on? Now, my job as an MEP was very clear. It was to make people in this country understand what was really happening in Brussels, because until people like me had gone there, there was a sort of wall of silence. Everybody was living this very comfortable life and not talking about it very much. Uh, my biggest achievement, gosh, do you know what it was? Making people laugh. Actually, some of the twos and fro's that I had with European commissioners and world leaders, and whilst they were some pretty spirited exchanges, we did manage to get a bit of humour into it too. And without humour, what is the point of life? Brian on email asks, will Nigel Farage ever come back to politics? Well, you can never leave politics if you care about current affairs and you care about the world and you enjoy debate. Um, I think what you really mean is, will I go back to party politics? Well, do you know what? I did give that 25 years of my life, uh, which is a very, very long time. Right at the minute, I have no plans to return to party politics. And if I ever do, it's a long, long way away. I can promise you. Right, we're getting to the last couple. Andrew asks an email, where are your favourite places to visit in Europe? Lunch anywhere in Italy, because they just do it so much better than absolutely anybody else. Second to that, I think actually... Uh, oh, I was going to say driving. Roger's still here. He won't like that. But driving through rural France um, without having booked anywhere to stay and just turning up uh, and you realise what a fantastic place rural France is. It should be. After all, vast amounts of British taxpayers' subsidy have kept it going for a very, very long time. Right. Now, I think, that's, I th- I think we're done for the day. Um, and, and I must say thank you, everybody. Uh, you know, you, you really are amazing in terms of the input you give to this programme. And I do use a lot of the emails that you send me to help me guide the direction of this show.